Welcome to episode 44 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Stateman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the need for culture change within the Canadian Armed Forces and new appointments, including the new BCDS. We also discuss the one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 lockdown and the implications of the pandemic moving forward. Our feature interview is with Dr. Lina Tamsedo, who is the CDSN Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the Queen's Centre for International and Defence Policy. At the very end of the episode, we have Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. So Stephanie, how are you doing on the anniversary of COVID in Canada? Yeah, it's a pretty sad uh, anniversary, but we also had International Women's Day on, on Monday. So that was a cause for celebration and certainly a big week when it comes to the appointment of women in senior military roles, both in Canada and, and the United States. I'm trying to figure out where to start. We can start with the news from last night. We have a, a, a new vice chief of defense staff uh, I'm going to make a cultural reference that a lot of people aren't going to get, but I'll come back in Steve's R&R segment at the end of this podcast. But it turns out that the vice chief of defense staff remains the spinal tap drummer of Canadian defense. General Francis Allen will be replacing Lieutenant General Rouleau as the vice chief of defense staff, uh, amongst other personnel moves. Do you have reactions to that besides what you're telling the media today? Yeah, so the question I've been asked a lot today so far is whether this should be seen through the prism of the most recent sexual misconduct allegations and whether this VCDS appointment is a way to appease tensions within the CAF. So I think it's clear that the circumstances of this appointment are linked to the recent sexual misconduct allegations because it's created a, a big shuffle in terms of senior leadership positions. I do think that, you know, had there been an opening for the VCDS position, Francis Allen's name would have been considered regardless of the cultural context that we're in right now. And she was at NATO on uh, the military committee. She's a three-star general, so she's naturally in the running for this position. That being said, I do think it's significant for a woman to be holding that position. It's an important milestone. She's the first woman to step into the role of vice chief of the defense staff. So I also don't want to take anything away from, from that milestone. And it's you know, it's always great to, to see a role model, you know, like General Allen uh, be recognized for, for leadership and certainly has important expertise in terms of cyber defense, uh, recent NATO experience, so she's got a lot to offer in this role. And just speaking to, I guess, International Women's Day and, and the importance of this milestone, I think from the moment almost all professional barriers were removed for women's participation in the CAF in, in the 1980s, it obviously took decades for women to reach the highest ranks and to be mm -hmm. in the running for two and three star positions. So it's nice to see a lot of these uh, more senior appointments being filled by women. And, and another one which didn't get as much play in the news, but I think which is very important, especially when it comes to changing the culture of the Canadian Armed Forces, the, the appointment of uh, Brigadier General Lise Bourgon as Commandant of the Royal Military College. You have 
someone who's very, very committed in terms of leading the calf in a, in a good direction. So I can think of uh, no better person to be that, that transformational leader for an institution like the Royal Military College. It's so important to support the next generation in terms of that culture shift. Yeah, I, th- I think the funny thing is, is that Francis Allen, Lieutenant General Francis Allen, was bandied about as a potential CDS candidate last summer when, when we were all placing our bets on who was going to be the next CDS. So making her vice chief makes sense in terms of she's definitely qualified for it. It's interesting that in the moves they've made, they put Lieutenant General Air as a temporary acting CDS rather than Rouleau. And then they moved Rouleau to be a strategic advisor for the modernization or whatever of the CAF, which is a strange position. Usually once you're done with being vice chief, you're you're either moved up or out and then sent instead he's moved somewhere else. I'm, I'm not sure it's sideways or down, but it's a strange move. But it's certainly the case that the women that have been moved into important positions in the, the next rotation, the, they're definitely qualified. And I met Brigadier General Bonillon at uh, your conference last year, I guess two years ago now, and I talked with her about some things that I, I've been playing with the CDSN. So she's, she's definitely a terrific uh, person to be put in that role as, as heading RMC. And so these moves make a lot of sense. But I guess it gets to the, the, the big issue of the day, which is the series of hearings and the series of reports in the, in the media have shown that the previous efforts to deal with both sexual misconduct and abuse of power within the CAF have only gone so far. You have an op-ed in today's Globe and Mail that addresses these issues. So why don't you go first on, on this, which is, you know, there's been, the, the liberals have now been quoted is saying that they want to have an external panel do something. Do you think that is what's going to move the needle on this? What What do you think are the next steps that make sense? Yeah, so you mentioned the, the op-ed and I co-authored this op-ed with a colleague from the Smith Business School, uh, Dr. Tandy Thomas. And what we argue in the op-ed is that uh, military culture has been optimized for war fighting success. And this means a military culture that is geared towards uh, promoting group cohesion, rigid hierarchies, and obedience, but that also makes it a difficult environment for calling out bad behavior, especially the bad behavior of leaders, and it makes it difficult for culture change overall. So we just kind of highlight the the very monumental but important task that is uh, facing the Canadian Armed Forces right now. And I think that because military culture is at the heart of the problem, you can't just ask the CAF to either police itself or to transform its own culture. You do need some external oversight mechanisms and you do need independent reporting and investigation procedures put in place because what's been done the last five years, there were many steps in the right direction, just hasn't led to the kind of transformative change that the Canadian Armed Forces need and which the, the recent scandals like really targeting the highest levels of CAF leadership, you know, translate into, into really a moment of crisis, I think, for the organization. So it's time to, yes, look at what's been done in the last five years and recognize that the, the changes didn't go far enough. But it's also, in my mind, important to address this whole question with a lot of nuance, with you know a, a real hard look at how a military culture takes shape. What are the incentive structures for its maintenance at all levels of the organization? And then how do you make the changes so that the trends that are going in the positive direction, that you keep those, but that where you see, you know, a significant impasse, and it seems to me that that's the case for definitely the reporting and investigation 
processes that you make the necessary changes. So I guess I, I'm, I'm calling on a bit more nuance in the way that we approach this. And that's what the op-ed tried to highlight, because this is a complex problem and there isn't just one silver bullet solution. We really need to grapple with the messiness and complexity of culture of a large organization. So that that's what the, the op-ed was all about. And I think that I'm finding very exciting the discussions that we're hearing about surrounding how to reform re reporting procedures so that victims and survivors feel safer in terms of coming forward and calling out some of the abuses that are going out, how to reform investigation processes so that they're more independent and truly sit outside the chain of command. And then finally, there's the issue of uh, you know, perhaps creating an oversight body that, that can translate into more checks and balances throughout this journey of culture change. Because uh, as I mentioned before, we can't just ask the, the CAF to police itself and to enforce this change that goes very much against the grain of its own organizational culture. What about you, Steve? Have you weighed in at all in this debate? I know that you had some blog posts and some Twitter exchanges, but what do you think is most important to do in this moment? Well, I think that the challenge here is that this is obviously not something that can be fixed easily or quickly or anything like that. I think that one of the things we have to wonder about when we talk about external review panels or bodies or whatever is who do they report to? Do they report to the defense minister? Because if you have a defense minister like the current one, that may not help things very much. This current defense minister hasn't really seemed to handle this particularly well. And so if you just report to the defense minister, that may not be sufficient. On the other hand, in the past, I've been a critic of, of parliament. And so if you haven't reported parliament, does that lead to any real change? And because the parliament doesn't really legislate a whole lot about what the, you know, doesn't provide specific kinds of instructions for the military. It doesn't pass new laws much to change how things are done compared to how the United States or German uh, legislatures play a role in these things. In Germany, the ombudsman reports to the defense committee in Germany. And because the defense committee is a very powerful actor, that gives the ombudsman real teeth. Whereas in Canada, the ombudsman seems to be easily marginalized, at least the current one, by the Minister of so I do think that it makes sense for whatever this external body is, is to either report to both the Minister of Defense and to Parliament or to Parliament, because keeping things in-house doesn't seem to work. I think a larger challenge is that, at least as far as I've read, and again, I'm not an expert on this, it seems to me that the Canadian military, like many militaries, really puts most of, of the weight or of the organization, the, the attention on, on the infantry and on the other combat arms within the Navy and with the Air Force. And that might be the most homogenous part of, of the armed forces. It might be the one most prone to the most toxic forms of toxic masculinity. Uh, that's certainly the impression I got from reading Sandra Prawn's book about her experience as the first infantry officer. Things may have changed in the past 30 years, but Maybe they haven't changed as much as, as we'd like. And so one thing to think about is as we've gotten into more complex battlefields, that the battlefield is not always just the front line, but everywhere else with cyber, with whole of government efforts and all the rest, maybe it's time to define the military and excellence in a more nuanced way. So it's not always privileging the part of the military that might be the most resistant to change. How you change the culture of an organization is a complex question, and it requires a lot of work. And I think one step should be for the CAF and D&D, for the academics, to study what our allies have done, because they've gone through some of similar things. And whether they've been successful or not, we can learn from their successes then and their mistakes. How do you change the culture of an organization is, is something that's, that, that is not just about external review boards, because they don't really do that. I think it, we need to think about how the military organizes itself, what are the incentive structures 
structures, what is considered to be excellence, what are considered to be the role models, and maybe think about how to change some of that. So that way it's not always about striving to be the best killer on the front lines, but you know, people who have a variety of skill sets and that might then lead to people be more included for the variety of things they bring to bear, not just being the biggest person in the room or the or whatever. I guess that I guess that's that's where I'm thinking right now. I, I haven't really fully flesh it out, but I, I do think that it's more than just a few personnel choices and an external review board. This is a bigger problem than that, and it requires rethinking what is valued. If we're talking about organizational culture, we're talking about what are the what are the values and meanings attached to things, and so then we need to change that. Yeah, I still think an oversight body is is needed though to do that periodic monitoring if the CAF is really committed to a, a path of cultures change, which you're right, involves a bunch of things from, from leadership to, to organizational values. But if there's no external oversight body, then you know next time we'll know there's a problem is with the next scandal. And that's what has been the cyclical momentum of sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. It's when a scandal breaks the news, then all of a sudden there is a hurried response to the to the scandal and a bunch of measures are implemented. And then, you know, Five years goes by, and then we we seem to be reliving a similar story mm-hmm. all over again. So this is you don't want it to be cyclical and you know knee jerk reactions and policy initiatives. You want it to be constant, regular change. You want it to be monitored so that someone is checking in on on how the organization is doing, and some kind of accountability mechanism that sits outside of of the organization that is uh, tasked to change. Yeah, I definitely think that an external review process is necessary. It, it's clear the military can't handle it on its own. They've been some improvements along the way. But one of the things that crises do is they provide opportunities. So yes, it would be better if we had a steady evolution, sustained effort, but that's not really how these things tend to work. It re- we require a media coverage that creates a, a story and a sense of crisis and a sense of urgency so that you actually are more willing to m- make significant changes and invest and break a few dishes along the way that the moves that are going to be made are going to be upsetting to some people. But it, it's this kind of moment that leads to a sense of urgency that might lead to some real change because the steady evolution hasn't been the thing. Barriers that are in the way need to be broken. And sometimes the best way to break something is, is is not to push steadily against it, but to smack it really hard. And, you know, the military might be afraid of that because the last time they went through this kind of thing was in the aftermath of Somalia. But I can't see them changing just because, you know, there's just, I think an external reporting mechanism is important, but there needs to be more than that. I mean, it needs to be a sustained effort, but I think that a sustained effort will get energy and momentum in this moment of crisis. And then there's, you know, lower lying fruit as well. Like there's the the really big task of culture change. There's the setting up of new structures, but then it seems like there are simpler things that can change overnight, like better vetting process for leadership positions and certain things like that, where it seems to me that, you know, having three uh, different CDSs since the beginning of the year really points to a problem. Yes. Yes. That's absolutely the case. And that, that's a, that's a, a problem this government has had not just in the military matters, but in, in other places as well. You know, our governor general that we just lost was a victim of, you know, that process was a victim of poor vetting. So certainly better vetting to be done. And so there are other things they can do. I guess what I want to turn to now, this is the anniversary this week. Prime Minister announced March 11th as the day to remember those we've lost in the pandemic. I was already using that date as the anniversary because that was A, the date that Tom Hanks was discovered to have the disease that the NBA closed down. And B, it was the last time I traveled. I I was coming home from a CDSN event in Toronto, the Capstone, Mm. which is we're having again uh, in two weeks. 
and I was at the Billy Bishop Airport in Toronto, and it was not, there weren't very many people in it, but I could hear every sniffle and every cough, and I was oh, very yeah. sensitive at that moment in time that that, that was probably the, my last trip for a while. And so we're now at a year, and I guess the question is, is what have we learned about Canadian Defense and Security in this year of dealing with an emergency that has, that has harmed more Canadians than I think any war since World War II? Yeah, it's, it's funny. In case of emergency, you call the military. It seems that's been the, the big lesson. I remember the military being called upon for the first time in terms of pandemic response to oversee travelers quarantine at CFB Trenton. Remember one of the first things we were learning about, uh, one of the first stories where we were learning about Canadian citizens being affected by COVID-19 were those Canadians trapped on board a large cruise ship. And so GAG had to coordinate the evacuation of, of these citizens and they were brought home and then they were quarantined on a Canadian forces base. So that was, that was the first thing that the Canadian Armed forces were called upon to do. And then much like our work schedules were disrupted the service members battle rhythm <laughs> were equally disrupted, whether they were at home doing a staff job or deployed on operations. And we uh, have talked a lot, uh, you and I, about how the lockdown impacted the military. You know, the first priority seemed to be protecting the force. And that became a key imperative because keeping personnel safe would mean they would be available to support domestic operations. Then a bit later on in May, we had Operation Laser and the military took on this role for looking after long-term care facilities in Ontario and Quebec that quickly became overwhelmed with the, with the pandemic. And now we're in this other phase uh, of military involvement of Vector with the vaccine rollout and Major General Danny Fortin being put in charge of coordinating Canada's mass vaccination efforts. So there have been a few phases since the beginning, and certainly that's been, I think, what Canadians have been most exposed to, that domestic role that the Canadian Armed Forces has taken mm -hmm. on since the beginning of the crisis. But of course, uh, and, and we just uh, co-authored a chapter on this, and we also had the earlier policy options piece on this, but we also saw the, the military adaptation when it came to international operations. I don't know if you want to speak to that point specifically. Sure, Stephanie. I think the real pattern of variation we see in what the CAF has done abroad has been whether they're hanging out with others or themselves. If they're hanging out with others, then those efforts have been mostly turned down. They've been delayed, uh, slowed down. Capacity building, that is training the militaries in Iraq and in, in Ukraine, came to a stop mostly put on hold while people are trying to figure out how to make this stuff work. They've been slowly been ramping those things back up, but they're still not what they were. Whereas other kinds of operations, whether that's operations at sea or in the air where you're, you might be co-training with another military, with other people, but you're not actually interacting with them in a way that can spread disease. Those things have gone on. And what's also gone on has been the Canadian deployment in Latvia, where they've created their own bubble with some degrees of success and some degrees of failure, where the NATO troops in Latvia are all the same base. They learn from the Spanish and the Italians who experienced COVID first, and they've been mostly successful at keeping the level of COVID down. There's been some violations of, of quarantine protocols that did lead to some outbreaks. Currently looking at that to revise our paper, but... Overall, that, that mission has gone on because it's not about meeting new people every day and training you know, a series of 
of troops from different units over time. It's all about hanging out with the same people for six months. And so they've been able to mostly continue on. So the CAF has been operating abroad in a less than what it would ordinarily do, but still has maintained the presence. They've been sailing ships, be part of efforts as far as offshore of North Korea and in the Baltics. And they've, as I said, they've had the participated in the air patrols in the skies of Romania. So these things have been going on. So in terms of the CAF's response to things, it's been pretty good. I think one of the things that this whole thing raises is sort of an existential question, which is, yes, the CAF has played a role in in long-term healthcare facilities. It's helped deal with uh, outbreaks of the disease in indigenous communities. It has played a role in the rollout, but we spend billions and billions and billions of dollars every year on defense. And it turns out the greatest harm that Canada has, has suffered over the past 70 years has been due to a disease, which the CAF really isn't there to help with, or at least not to stop or thwart. And of course, people can say, well, the military has done such a great job of deterring or preventing conflict that that nobody's been harmed by war in Canada in you know, generations. But on the other hand, I think we are seeing a process where people are going to be more critical of money being spent in the military and more imaginative about what are threats to Canadians. And whether that's climate change or future pandemics, I think we're going to have people take more seriously the idea that Canada's security hinges on things other than the Canadian military. I mean, it's a good point that you raised. And I think what we have not looked at together or not discussed together is whether the security environment will be impacted by COVID in the short to medium term with uneven access to vaccines, Mm -hmm. there's going to be staggered economic uh, recovery based on this, and should we be anticipating an increase in violent conflict globally? So maybe, yes, we did see an increase in the the demands put on the CAF because of this pandemic domestically, but maybe we'll see both an uptick in, in the demands placed on the CAF happening domestically and internationally. So maybe that's what we need to look at next is how the security environment is impacted. We talk about the rise of great power competition, but I think it's fair to say that the consequences of this pandemic crisis will be more long lasting and can create more instability. Yeah, I've been saying for quite a while that this disease does to states and to organizations what it does to people, which is it reveals pre-existing conditions and exacerbates them. And the other thing this disease does is that it creates new pre-existing conditions. That is that the next generation is going to have impaired lungs based on who who suffered from this disease. It's created lasting damage to individuals, and it's going to create lasting damage to political systems and societies. That women have been pushed out of the workforce over the past year because working from home for women has become very impractical because, alas, caring for both kids and old people has has been a woman's job. And we're seeing that. And so we're seeing changes in, in, in uh, the workforce that are not going to go away very easily just when the jobs return. This may lead to a, a new revolution working from home because companies have learned that they can succeed at working from home, but that may have gendered implications. We're also going to see people be more critical of government because they, they'll see government fail. And so that may lead to more populism and more anti-government conspiracy thinking and not just in the United States, but elsewhere. So that, that, that may lead to more internal strife that will make it harder for Canada and for other countries to respond to other crises. So COVID is going to make a lasting impact even as we get further away from, uh, you know, the, the immediate emergency. All right. Well, not, we managed to uh, to take a, a few uplifting news items at the beginning, like <laughs> International Women's Day and the appointment of uh, Lieutenant General Francis Allen to the position of VCDS to ending in a rather dark place, but uh, it happens frequently. <laughs> two of us. Well, the good news is we have... A good news story for, for our podcast, which is that Lina Tamseto is not only the CDSN's first postdoctoral scholar who's 
been working with you on personnel issues, but she's also going to be one of the capstone laureates this year. So she'll be speaking in two weeks. So please check out our, our webpage and register for our event. We're going to have seven of the hottest hotshots in Canada present the best presentations from 2020 on defense and security issues on Monday, the 22nd in the afternoon. And that's really good news. Lena's done an amazing, she's done amazing work over the past year. She's been a great teammate for you. And her interview will be uplifting after our depressing conversation. <laughs> very, very true. So let's stay tuned for, for Lena's uh, interview. And also she's been all over the media in the past couple of weeks and, and she's done a fantastic job commenting on uh, the most recent issues affecting the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Stephanie, good luck as you deal with your own very, very busy schedule with the media hitting you hard due to the news last night. And good luck in all the things that you've taken on. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, appreciate our exchange as always. And I'll speak to you in two weeks. Sounds good. I am Lena Tamsito, and I am the Canadian Defense and Security Network Postdoctoral Research Fellow, and I am completing my fellowship with the uh, Center of International Defense Policy at Queen's with Dr. Stephanie Bonlacki. I have a PhD in Rehabilitation Science from Queen's, and I am a registered occupational therapist. So prior to doing my PhD, I worked a number of years in the area of child, adolescent, and family mental health, as well as supporting evidence-based professional practice with um, healthcare providers. My research interest includes understanding the health and well-being of Canada's military members, veterans, public safety personnel, and their families. And my focus is on life transition and changes, which is really consistent with the work that I have done in the past as an occupational therapist. Currently, my work with the CIDP involves the development of a gender-informed, culturally competent mentorship program to support service women within the Canadian Armed Forces. Welcome to Battle Rhythm, Lena. I've uh, had the privilege to work with you on your CDSN postdoctoral project this year at the Center for International and Defense Policy. I know you're familiar with the podcast, so let me ask you first how your research battle rhythm has been during this pandemic postdoc. Thank you very much for inviting me to join the podcast. I am a big fan of, of your podcast and big fan of podcasts in general since I'm working from home all the time now. So how have things changed with the pandemic um, with doing research? Data collection has been um, completely through telephone or online through video conferencing. There hasn't been any option for doing any focus groups and scheduling has being a challenge when virtual school was happening. I've got two school-age kids and um, there were, were periods of time where I had to really schedule around their schooling. I found myself doing interviews, you know, curled up on a bed and with signs all over the front of uh, the door of the bedroom to make sure no one will interrupt me. So it really has changed in terms of data collection. My research background has been in sort of health and wellness of military veteran and, and family community. So working in the area of personnel has been a bit different for me, and I was really looking forward to being able to collaborate and meet with uh, researchers and, and subject matter experts in, in this area. And unfortunately, I haven't been able to do that because of the pandemic. I've attended a lot of conferences, but they've all been virtual, which has been 
nice to be able to actually attend conferences, but at the same time, I've always found that the, the most beneficial part of conferences are those uh, moments in between the formal sessions when you're in a hallway and grabbing a coffee and, and meeting people. And so I really, really missed that. And even though I've been working from home for a number of years, I really do miss, you know, those opportunities that I get to travel into Kingston and, you know, meet with you in person and meet with the center and, and everyone that's doing work there. So it has changed quite a bit for me, even though I've always seemed to have worked from home, but little things like that have made um, a big difference. I can certainly relate to a lot of what you said about balancing having kids at home with uh, your research or teaching tasks. And certainly I have my little podcast studio here in the basement, which is also the Lego den. So it's not always that easy to make all of that work. So uh, well done on conducting a full range of interviews during this pandemic. That's quite a feat. And then my next question, I suppose the direct follow-up from the first one is how you came up with your CDSN postdoc topic on mentorship within the CAF. Uh, you come from a health background, so easy transition and what spurred the inspiration for this topic? It has been a bit of a pivot for me um, research-wise, but it was one that made a lot of sense given where I, I come from. So like I said before, I worked a number of years in healthcare as an occupational therapist. And one of my roles was taking research and, and doing that knowledge translation to healthcare providers. And that was, you know, anyone who's who's worked in sort of either end of that, that uh, relationship can attest that it is quite challenging. So what I did in my PhD work was come up with a model and framework that could be really be utilized. So something that's um, evidence informed um, to be utilized in, in practice. So my PhD work was to develop a military and veteran family cultural competency framework and model. So this was something that would help guide practice and understand how the role of military culture impacts on relationships between healthcare providers and those receiving care. I mean, this is a real world application. So it gives us an idea of, you know, what healthcare providers need to know and understand about military families and veteran families in order to provide them care that's informed. So there's a lot of misconceptions and, and lack of knowledge out there amongst healthcare providers in the civilian world. And really what I wanted to do is really bridge that gap. And we found in research that, you know, once people have this cultural competency, more specifically military cultural competency, the quality of care is much better for, for military families. So, you know, I was really hung up on this, the, the impact of, you know, awareness and knowledge on relationships. So I started to examine how military and civilian culture can impact other relationships, and particularly when there's change involved. So like I was saying before, as, a, as an OT, I'm always really keen on how change can impact, you know, how we uh, manage day to day. And then I started looking at how military culture and civilian culture impacts on military to civilian transition period. And some of the work that I did was interviewing people that were going through the transition process. It was interesting talking to, to women who were, you know, about my age, who were, had, you know, younger children who decided to leave, not for medical reasons, but decided to leave because, well, they had families and that was the choice that they made. And I thought that was quite interesting that they made that. And it was more than just, you know, one or two, there were a fair number enough uh, women who are was talking to that that made me realize you know there there might be something there then at the same time I started teaching a course on mentoring and 
coaching and gave me an opportunity to really do a deep dive into the mentoring research. I've been fortunate enough to have some really fantastic mentors, specifically Dr. Alan English and Dr. Heidi Cram, who have supported my journey along, you know, balancing life and, and career and making some, you know, really tough choices. And what was nice for me to see when digging into the mentorship uh, literature is that, you know, it's fairly well articulated what the functions of mentorship are. And so one of the things that sort of came up in my reading of the mentorship is that it's been used in a lot of organizations that have challenges with recruiting and, and retention, particularly for minority populations like women. So, you know, how I came up with this topic through, you know, some really great discussion with you initially is that it sort of all sort of came together that, you know, there is a role for mentorship and it has been used in the U.S. and, and internationally to support, you know, these challenges with recruitment and, and retention. And it's being used in Canada here as well, but at, at a less sort of formal level, I guess. I mean, there are formal mentorship programs that are in place, but there doesn't appear to be anything that's been evidence-based. And because of, you know, my knowledge of the role of culture on these types of relationships and also, you know, the impact of and role of gender um, and other intersectional identities, you know, what does mentorship look like for the Canadian Armed Forces? That's how we sort of came up with this idea of embarking on a, a study to look at and um, collect evidence to support a mentorship program that is, you know, gender informed as well as informed by the role of culture. So that's sort of how it this this topic came up. It's sort of you know a nice sort of accumulation of you know my research and my practice experiences. That's really interesting. And I want to go back to something that you just said around misconceptions with regards to healthcare practitioners and their interactions with members mm -hmm. of the military or veterans. I'm wondering if for our audience, you can illustrate that point a bit further, perhaps through examples or some yeah. findings that came up in your past research. You know, full disclosure, I don't come from a military background. I don't have anyone in my family who's um, been a part of the military. So I came in very much like, you know, most of my, my colleagues in the civilian world where, you know, my knowledge of military families is, you know, what we get from the movies. So that means, you know, everyone has a trauma history. You know, there are dysfunctional families. Families are, you know, not coping well. So there's a lot of sort of negative perceptions about military families. Oh, and, and you know, a big one in Canada is that military families receive healthcare through D&D uh, &D and CAF, which isn't the case. So, you know, military families receive care like all of us who are civilians through the provincial and territorial system. And this lack of knowledge and, and these misconceptions about how military families are doing really colors and filters how healthcare providers interact with military families. And some of the work that I've been a part of, we realize that people aren't even asking the question about whether or not these families are connected to the military. You know, when families move from one jurisdiction to another, quite often they have to go back to the bottom of the wait list. And when it comes to specialized healthcare, that can be a, a real problem. You know, there's been some really great work that's being done in Canada, putting these healthcare and, and military family health issues, you know, on the radar within the Canadian context, because previously we've sort of just looked abroad. And that's sort of, I guess, been, you know, a big change since I've uh, started in this, this area. Area of work. Thank you for that answer and for those clarifications. Now we'll move on to your current research project. You will be offering a full-fledged presentation of your work at the CDSN Capstone Conference and also at the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's next month. It'll be a busy mm -hmm. month. Yes. And uh, ahead of these events, would you mind sharing what some of your most surprising findings have been from the project? 
So this is the first time that I had done research with military members themselves. So in the past, it's been with healthcare providers who have worked with the population or with veterans or with or speaking to families. So this is the first time I've had the, the honor of, of speaking to military members themselves. And one of the surprising things I found is that people were really, really eager to talk to me. We had, you know, an overwhelming response. People were happy to share their experiences around mentorship and tell other colleagues about it. So I was getting a lot of, it was the best example of uh, snowball recruitment, where it was one person talking to another, and then I would get two more. Um, and it got to the point where you and I had discussed that we had to, you know, let people know that it had stopped, like that we were no longer collecting data because it was so much information. So, you know, first and foremost, I'd like to thank all the participants and all the interest in, in the study. So that was something that really surprised me is that people were wanting to talk because they felt that mentorship, particularly for women within the CAF, is something important that needs to be investigated. Something else that surprised me is that mentees become mentors. So I had initially wanted to recruit people who were mentors and then another group that were mentees. And very quickly, I found that I couldn't divide them into those two groups because people who spoke to me had amazing mentee experiences. And as a result, they themselves become mentors. So I really think that this is like a life course sort of throughout the lifespan of one's career of a relationship and a, and a perspective. So I think that's a really big, important message to be sharing is that if we sort of instill, you know, the importance and significance and benefits of mentorship very early on, we're going to churn out some really great mentors down the road. So that was an, uh, a really interesting finding. And what I also found surprising is that, like I said before, there are efforts within the CAF, within different environments that have mentorship programs, but it's not well known. Even though there's been a lot of support and resources put into developing um, mentorship resources, not everyone's aware of that, which is unfortunate. Um, and I do appreciate that, you know, our members are quite busy with all the other tasks, but I really think that there's a space for, for formal mentorship education, which is something that I'll probably be sharing sort of at the, the end of, of this project. Good. And, and I'll ask you uh, additional questions about these more practical aspects of your research. Mm -hmm. Those are, are so important uh, based on the work that you're you're doing and the evidence base you're collecting for mentorship. But before I do that, I just want to underscore the importance of something that you said about mentors and mentee and how it's difficult to separate the two categories because an mm -hmm. individual can be in both roles. And I suppose from more personal standpoint, you've learned about mentorship as it relates to your project, but also how it might relate to your own experience as a potential mentor, as a potential mentee. And I think everyone is called upon to take on that kind of role or to be a mentee at one point in their career. You're, you're right. It's part of our career cycle to mm -hmm. occupy one role or the other or both simultaneously. So I was wondering if you had any practical advice for people out there who want to engage in a mentorship relationship, any best practices either for mentees or mentors? What the evidence has shown is that one's sort of perception and behavior and attitude towards what mentorship is plays a big role in how successful you're going to be. So if you view mentorship as something that's bi-directional, so not just, you know, me as a mentor, I'm going to teach you everything. 
I will tell you what you need to know. I find those and the evidence supports this, not just from my work, but also in the, the literature that understanding and appreciate that it's, it's bi-directional. So I, as a mentor, can learn from a mentee to help my own growth. Those are pieces of advice that can help with, you know, developing, you know, a mentorship program. I forgot what your question was. No, no, it's good. I see some, some mentorship programs emerging at Queens. I know the Women in International Security Queens chapter has come up with a mentorship program. And I know that at RMC too, there's been the Athena network focused on mentoring cadets. So I think it's really great to be able to learn from the insights that your work provides, because I think everyone's looking for how to do this best so that both the, the mentor and mentee can find that relationship fulfilling. Of course, the mentor wants to feel useful (laughs) and the mentee probably has some specific goals in mind when seeking out a mentorship relationship. So I I think we all stand to learn a lot from your work and I'm excited about the findings and what comes also after, because of course you'll be very busy writing up the results of your research, publishing academic articles, possibly some policy briefs, but I know there's more to that in terms of the practical application of your work. And certainly your past research in the health domain has shown this, You've really been able to influence practice and engage with a broad variety of stakeholders in getting your research findings out so that they have a real impact. So this may be a bit too early on since you're still analyzing the data and writing the stuff up and presenting it for the first time. But how do you envisage this next step of your postdoc, which is really about knowledge dissemination and seeking out that more practical impact of your work? Because this um, research is grounded partially in the cultural competency model that I developed during my PhD, there is a direct application. So, you know, I've had some success in applying my PhD work in resource tools that have actually been developed and being used by the Kalyan network of clinics to support healthcare providers with military families. So, I mean, I've had the experience of being able to create a tool that can be used in the real world. I mean, what I see for this, and I sort of already sort of envisioned this, even though, you know, there's big jump from where I am right now to to actually having an output, but I really do see having a framework of some sort, sort of guidelines that build upon what's already there. So I know that, you know, WISE and Athena have guidelines and how they match up mentors and mentees and sort of some suggestions and strategies. But what this research can do is really sort of support and augment on what's already there and also possibly create a framework on how to do it. One of the things that have come up in the interviews is, you know, how, how much structure should a mentorship program have. If there's too much structure, people feel like they're forced to do it, but if there's too little, there's no accountability. So, and I I feel that, you know, one of the the things that is going to be indicated in this tool at the end of of the project is, you know, some suggestions on how to sort of strike that that balance of, you know, having too much support or too little, because that's really important in, in sustaining a mentorship program. You know, at some point you need to sort of have that support to keep people, get people together on certain periods of time to discuss certain things, but eventually if it's a a relationship that clicks, people will be getting together regardless and, and, you know, going to their mentor and mentee, um, regardless of what the, you know, I guess the the quote unquote rules are. And in the the interviews that I've conducted, I've heard that. So people have, were sort of formally matched up, but then realized that they both, you know, both parties were benefiting from that relationship and would continue on anyway. What was really interesting is that when I was doing the interviews, I'd be talking to people that talked about themselves as, as mentors, and then they would speak very highly of their mentee. And then they would, you know, say a couple of names and, you know, and a couple of days later, I'd actually be 
speaking to the mentees who would talk about, you know, how great their mentors were and, you know, and, and name them. So it was really nice for me to sort of see like, wow, these are really functional, really good um, mentorship examples because, you know, they're, they're both talking about one another. And of course, being a researcher, I just, just listened, but it was really heartwarming for me to see that, you know, these were, there are some really strong, really great mentorship programs that have sort of grown organically in a, in a lot of ways. And what, my hope is being to do at the end of this is being able to capture aspects of that and people put it on paper and, and share it with the calf to say, you know, this is what the evidence is, is saying to support mentorship. And I suspect some of these mentorship relationships grew even more important during the pandemic. I think it's true when you start seeing uh, those testimonies about mentees and mentors, they take on a brand new importance in an era where we're a bit professionally isolated. Absolutely. And more specifically, mentorship for women and the, the gender lens that was really evident when talking to the participants in the study is that there are very much gendered roles that have been exacerbated because of the pandemic and how people are able to perform in their jobs because of these I guess, gendered expectations and roles within the greater Canadian society. I mean, we've all heard, um, you know, the studies that have been released through the pandemic that there has been a, a significant sort of shift in the role of women because of, you know, increased caretaking role and how, you know, women have been leaving their professional jobs in order to take care of their families because of the pandemic. And that hasn't left the calf untouched from the people that I've been talking to because we were collecting data right in the middle of the pandemic. So these stories came out mm -hmm. that, you know, women have had to shift a lot in their, their roles within the calf and have turned their, to their mentors to say, Hey, you know, how do I navigate this? You know, how do I, you know, what can I do? What have you experienced? So, I mean, gender definitely does play a role in how mentorship looks like. Mm, that's fascinating. And you're doing such amazing work, Lena. I know we don't get to see each other face to face, but I'm going to re-emphasize this in, in a very public way. And even though we can't have the conferences and the workshops and, and the meetings with the rest of uh, our CDSN membership right now, you are now part of the CDSN family uh, forever. <laughs> so rest assured, there will be plenty of opportunities in the future. <laughs> in the future. After times. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much, Lena, for being on Battle Rhythm. It's great to yeah. talk to you on the podcast. And I look forward to following the progress of your work and uh, stay safe. I want to thank you, the CDSN, for supporting this work. And I'm, you know, very proud to be part of the team now. And thank you very much for your, your leadership and your mentorship. Oh, that uh, warms my heart. Thank you so much, Lena. It's been such a pleasure to work with you and to get to know you. Take care. Thank you. On today's r, &R segment, I'm a bad reader, so we're going to go with two movies, one old, one new, and one TV show. The new movie is Moxie. It's directed by Amy Poehler, and she plays a supporting role. It's about a teenage girl who launches a feminist movement in her high school, and it's entertaining, it's moving, and it's timely. I, it's a really good watch. Uh, the young people in it are, God, I sound old. Uh, the young people in it are fantastic. And... I think it has some really important messages. So I, I, I think Moxie, it's a, it's a fun movie to watch. The second 
movie is an old one and I've been referring to it. So I might as well push it out there, which is Spinal Tap. If you have not seen Spinal Tap, you need to see Spinal Tap. It is a great mockumentary. It's a fake documentary about an aging rock band. It was made by Rob Reiner uh, in the late 1980s and it has some great memes, some great lines in it. And I constantly refer to the vice chief of defense staff position as being the Spinal Tap drummer of Canada of the Canadian defense and to understand that reference, you got to see this movie and you got to see it anyway, because it's a really, really delightful movie. It helped launch the mockumentary format that became the office parks and rec and other, other TV and movies that had dot fake documentaries as their conceit. The third is Nancy Drew. I've been watching Nancy Drew with my wife, uh, the TV show on what is the CW in the United States. I forget how you can get it in Canada. Uh, but it's, I guess it's on space or something like that. But it's a delightful mystery series starring Nancy Drew, of course, uh, in a main town where she keeps on making decisions that get her deeper and deeper into, into danger uh, and to get her friends into danger. And it's, it's a fun show. It's a nice distraction from the day's events. And uh, I haven't done anything to invoke a sea god to be hate, you know, um, an evil spirit to to make my life miserable. So I'm, I'm so far doing better than Nancy Drew. So those are my recommendations for this week. We've, we're hitting the year anniversary of the pandemic in Canada. I've been blogging a lot about it. It may be a time for us to reflect a little bit on, on what has gone well, as well as reflecting on those who've been harmed and those who've been lost in this crazy year. Uh, we're closer to the end now than we are to the beginning, but it sometimes doesn't feel like that. So be well, thank you. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to cdsn.rcds.outlook.com. Thank you.